before I even get into introducing Tim, I want to remind all of you who are joining us on Zoom, on Facebook, on YouTube, we are gonna be taking your questions. So just go ahead and tee them up. Please keep them short. We'll get to as many of them as we can, but this is a wonderful opportunity. So I do urge you to take advantage of it and tee up your questions. So Tim is the vice president uh, for litigation at the Goldwater Institute, which I recently had the uh, honor to visit for the very first time last month. He is an adjunct scholar as well at the Cato Institute. Uh, he litigates important cases for economic liberty, private property rights, and free speech. Uh, he is also the author of Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man. Um, his book and his input really helped to shape the uh, Draw My Life that we did on Frederick Douglass, which has now received nearly uh, a million and a half views. Um, so uh, Tim is also a frequent contributor to the Objective Standard. I also see he's gonna be a speaker at their conference this summer. Uh, he also writes for other forums such as Dis Dispatch. His other books include Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America, co-authored with his wife, Christina Sandifer, a previous guest on the webinar. So you got a tough act to follow there. Um, he is also the author of The Permission Society, uh, the, conscious of the Conscience of the Constitution and the Right to Earn a Living. So I uh, only have two of his books here. So clearly I've got to do some work on getting my uh, Tim Sandford Library up to date. Tim, welcome again. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me back. And, and I'm looking forward to the Draw My Life you base on my other books. I uh, yeah, well, absolutely. That we we will definitely get to it because a million views on that Frederick Douglass one. That's really excellent. That's really something. Yeah, yeah. No, that uh, did really, really well, um, and uh, it um, it also just got a tremendous amount of positive engagement. You know, we we get our fair share <laughs> of trolls at the Atlas Society, but that was uh, that was really special, and uh, my reading and listening to your book and, and talking to you and reading some of the speeches that, uh, that you've given on the subject um, really helped to put me in the right frame of that. So wouldn't have been possible without you. <laughs> um, so Tim, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot today is uh, this narrative um, that is propagated in part by the 1619 Project that the Constitution uh, protects slavery and that anyone who uh, supports the constitution is therefore uh, pro-slavery or at least uh, at the very least racist, but um, none other than Frederick Douglass himself, whose thinking on the constitution changed over time, actually came to embrace it as a tool to fight for uh, abolition. So how did he come to such a different conclusion about this? What was a little bit of his development on that? Well, so Douglas, you know, he escapes from slavery in 1838 when he's about 20 years old, and he went to Massachusetts from there. And in Massachusetts, he fell under the sway of the Massachusetts abolitionists under the leadership of William Lloyd Garrison. And Garrison is really the godfather of this idea that the Constitution is an evil document because it protects slavery. And that was kind of the doctrine of the Massachusetts-based abolition movement. 
Uh, there was another group of abolitionists, however, who were headquartered in New York under the leadership of a man named Jarrett Smith, who had a different view. They said that the Constitution, if properly interpreted, turned out to be fundamentally anti-slavery. And what they meant by that was that it gave no express protection for slavery. It allowed Congress to restrict or even prohibit slavery if it wanted to. And slavery was ultimately inconsistent with or incompatible with the Constitution's provisions in the long run. And so what happened with Douglas was he started out under the sway of, of Garrison, but in the 1840s, he moved to New York and he fell in with Jared Smith and he changed his mind on this. And in the, and in the early 1850s announced this in, in his newspaper in an article called Change of Mind Announced in which he said, you know, I used to think the Constitution was a pro-slavery document, but now that I've been reading these books and analyses by these New York abolitionists, people like Lysander Spooner, uh, William Goodell, uh, uh, Charles Sumner, who actually was from Massachusetts, these guys argued, no, the Constitution is a fundamentally anti-slavery document. And if, we, if, if elected officials had the guts to, they could use it to restrict and abo even abolish slavery. And so when the war broke out in 1861, Douglas saw that as kind of a vindication of his point of view. He said, look, the people who had to abandon the Constitution were the pro-slavery guys. They're the ones who had to leave the Union because the Constitution gave the Lincoln administration the power to restrict slavery. So Douglas really stands as a, 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 a great spokesman for this idea that, as he put it, interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. The subtitle of your book is self-made man, which uh, was the name of a speech that Douglas gave as he traveled around the country, uh, indeed actually around the world. Why did you choose th that title, that subtitle, and uh, what was the most important message of that, that speech? I know you've written about the speech as well. Well, you know, Douglas was a professional orator. It was how he made his money traveling around the country and as you say, around the world giving lectures and speeches. And really, it, you know, it, the, the collected edition of his papers includes a list, a, a schedule, and it it's really incredible how much he traveled and, and, and how often he gave speeches. And his most popular speech was called Self-Made Men. And it was kind of, you know, it was an evening's entertainment back then. There was no television or radio, of course. So what you would do is you would go hear a traveling lecturer. And Douglas spoke on many subjects, including photography, which he was very interested in. It was kind of a new thing in that day. And Douglas gave some really interesting lectures on the philosophical implications of photography. But his most uh, popular lecture was Self-Made Men, which was kind of a, a biography, you might say, it's a, a, a short biographical examination of four or five prominent people who had risen from nothing to make of themselves uh, important or influential scientists or philanthropists or one, what, my, what have you. And of course, he didn't refer to himself, but he hardly needed to. Everybody in the audience realized that Douglas was the most self-made man of all, a person who you know, was born not legally owning his own bones and uh, managed to make of himself with no, no formal education whatsoever, a world famous author, lecturer, and diplomat. So it seems to me to be a really apt uh, description of Douglas himself and a, a good title to that really encapsulates how Douglas created his own personal, his own persona, you might say. After escaping from slavery, he was given this 
this challenge, this opportunity to make a new person of himself, literally taking a new name. Douglas, of course, was not the name he was born with. He borrowed that name from a, a poem by Sir Walter Scott and, uh, and to make himself the kind of person he wanted to be. And he did a, a spectacular job of that. And so it seemed to me like a good title. So I wanna encourage all of you that are joining us on Zoom, on Facebook, on YouTube, please take advantage of this opportunity. We can't have, uh, we can't ask Frederick Douglass questions uh, himself, but this is about as close as, as we're going to get. We're talking, of course, with Tim Sandfurs, one of the, the leading scholars on the subject of Sandfurs life, uh, uh, Douglass's life. Um, you, you, you know, you also are a, a leading thinker on objectivism and, uh, and it's interesting what you mentioned about um, Douglas's views on photography and how uh, he actually thought of it sort of philosophically. Ayn Rand also um, had some thoughts on art and on photography. Um, but what actually originally got us interested in, in the subject of, of doing Douglas as a Draw My Life was the chairman of the board of the Atlas Society, Jay LaPere, said that to him, uh, Frederick Douglass was the closest thing to an objectivist before objectivism. Are there some uh, parallels between oh, Douglass's vision and, and the ideas of Ayn Rand? Oh yeah, there, and, and very, uh, there's one in particular that's especially interesting, but uh, before I get to that, keep in mind the, for one thing, the historical timeline that we're talking about. Douglass died only about 10 years before Rand was born. So there would have been people around in, in Rand's lifetime who had known Douglas personally. And so we, I think a lot of the time we, when we talk about history, it's easy to you know, think of the world of you know, black and white photographs or, or pre-photography as being some other kind of world. And it's, it's easy to lose sight of what a short amount of time we're really talking about here. And a second thing is that Douglas was very influenced by a lot of the literature that was also very influential mm -hmm. to Rand. Douglas's favorite writers were people like Dumas and Hugo, who also exerted ex an extraordinary influence on Rand's own um, uh, literature and her philosophical outlook. But the, I think the most interesting parallel between the two is that Douglas was, I think, the, the, his great contribution as a political philosopher was the connection between self-esteem and political liberty. And this is a really interesting theme because it, uh, Douglas is, we always, when we talk about Frederick Douglass, it's easy to think of him as just an interesting historical figure because his personal biography is so interesting. And we, we tend to read uh, the first version of his memoirs, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. We tend to read that in high school and we don't read the second or third edition, which are, you know, those, he, he expanded them into a much larger book. And we don't, a lot of people don't read those. And so we tend to forget that after he escaped from slavery, Douglas became not just a spokesman, but a real political thinker and, and really a, a devotee of political philosophy and law. And his singular contribution in this, I think, is this connection between personal self-esteem and political liberty. The best example of this is Douglas gave a speech you know, during the Civil War. He was, in the, the, he was charged with recruiting people to join the army, uh, to recruit free blacks or escaped slaves to join the US Army to fight in the Civil War. 
And he gave this, this speech called, Why Should a Black Man Enlist? And now, no, nowadays, when you see a recruitment speech or a recruitment article or something, usually it takes the form of, well, you should serve your country. And what's interesting about Douglas's version is he never once in this article suggests that you should join the military to serve your country. Of course, the idea would have struck him as absurd because black Americans owed nothing to the country. It had mistreated them in the most horrifying ways. It had taken everything from them. So why in the world should they feel an obligation to serve their country? So Douglas never makes that argument. He makes the opposite argument. He says, you should join the military to fight this war because it's a just cause. And that is a reason enough because you need a sense of self-esteem he says, you know, he's of course speaking to former slaves. He says, your masters have mistreated you so much that you have tended to doubt your own selves and your own capacities. And by fighting in this war, you will build that sense of self-esteem that is necessary for you to enjoy freedom uh, once you have your freedom. And he says, and another reason is you need to get guns in your hands and learn how to use them because when this war is over, you're going to need to be able to defend yourself. And this is going to teach you how. So he goes through a long list of reasons to join the military and they're all in the form of pride, of the virtue of pride. And he connects this to political liberty in the most famous story of his autobiography. When, when Douglas stood up for himself, when he was still enslaved, he fought against this slave master whose job was to try and break his sense of independence. And uh, he tells this great story in his autobiography of how he stood up for himself. And he says the lesson he learned, he likes to quote the line of the, uh, of the poet Byron, um, he who would be free must himself strike the blow. And the point he means by this is you have to believe that you are worthy of freedom and you have to stand up for your own freedom. Freedom can never be given to somebody. It can only be taken by somebody who believes himself worthy of taking that freedom. And that strikes me as a very uh, objectivist friendly concept that there's this connection between believing myself to be a worthy individual who deserves the right to pursue happiness. And then from that to say, I also deserve a political society in which I am free to do so. Right, that was the, the confrontation between um, Edward Covey, I, th I think it was, who he had been sent to, right? Because right. he was a teenager and he was uh, starting to, uh, to disobey. And, um, and then he was sent and he, he talked about this very dark period um, and, and he describes it as well. And I thought one of the very interesting things, connections that you had made was to some of Hannah Arendt's uh, descriptions of the dehumanizing uh, conditions of uh, the concentration camps. Yeah, you know, the concentration camps of the tw early 20th century, the idea for that was in part based on some of the things that had been done both by the, the uh, uh, con confining of American Indians on reservations and by the treatment of slaves in the Old South part of which was to break down this sense, uh, a person's sense of individuality and independence. And those in the, in the 19th century, in the slavery days, that was a very crude, rudimentary form of what later was mass produced on a horrific scale in Europe in the 1930s and, and 1940s. So uh, we were talking about the connections and the similarities uh, between Ayn Rand and Douglas. Um, you are a frequent contributor to the objective standard, clearly thought a lot about objectivism. Love to hear, I don't always get to ask my guests because not 
everyone who comes on the show is is a you know a, a objectivist or student of objectivism but I do occasionally get to ask about uh, your the Ayn Rand origin story so I got to ask that of Christina just tell us a little bit about uh, how did you discover Ayn Rand how did it, uh, her ideas influence you um, perhaps maybe uh, your your favorite books of, of hers well, it's kind of a, a funny accident on my case. Um, I discovered Rand by purely by accident while I was slipping through the channels one summer when I was in high school. And I remember it was right before the school year was about to begin and I was kind of sitting on the couch and I changed the channels. I came across one of the movie channels. I said, well, we're coming up next a movie about an architect who challenges the the status quo or something. And I remember clearly, I remember the moment because I thought to myself, how can they make a movie about an architect? Wouldn't it just be two hours of somebody drawing, you know? <laughs> and so I watched it purely for that reason uh, to see how they could do that. And by the end of it, I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. You know, I'd never heard ideas like this before. And uh, school began only a, maybe a week later. And uh, my, my best friend then, and to this day, was my high school librarian. Surprise, surprise. And I told, I went into it. I was like, wow, I, there was this amazing movie called The Fountainhead. And, and he said, have you read the book? There's a book. And <laughs> so that was kind of the beginning of the end for me. But the, um, the, the land had been kind of laid already. I, because by that time, I was already very interested in ideas of political liberty. I, I, can, I can honestly say I was recruited to libertarian thinking by Thomas Jefferson himself. Um, I was, when I was growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. And so we would sometimes look in the newspaper for anything to do that was free. And we found that there was a, a, a lecture going on in a nearby community that Thomas Jefferson was going to be speaking and we could go hear him speak. So we went to this thing. It, it was this guy who performs this show where he dresses up like Thomas Jefferson and lectures in as if he were Jefferson that takes questions from the audience, you know, it's sort of an educational thing. And I was blown away. I was in ninth grade. I was blown away by this. This is fascinating. You know, obviously, Jefferson's such a fascinating historical figure. And so I started reading his stuff. And that kind of got me interested in, in the philosophical aspects of political liberty. So by the time I encountered Rand, I was already pretty interested in, in that sort of the connection between philosophy and politics. And it sort of grew from there. So if you were to do a living history, uh, have you ever done one or would you ever um, consider possibly oh, being... doing like a character like that? Yeah. Well, you know, it would be, I think it would be a lot of fun. I, I, it, it takes an awful lot of preparation and, sure and, does. and study, but yeah, I think it would be, a, I think it would be enjoyable. I've always said that my, my ideal job in retirement actually would be to become a, a tour guide at Monticello. I think that would be ideal. But well, uh, who, what person I would do, you know, I'm kind of tempted actually to say uh, Jacob Bernofsky, who is a scientist philosopher. I wrote a biography of uh, about two years ago, uh, just a fascinating 20th century figure, a, a, a television personality, a mathematician, a biologist, really a, a very interesting guy. It would be fun to do that, but I, I, I have nowhere near the intellect that he had, so. Well, uh, I, I can definitely say the same thing about Ayn Rand, but uh, but it but I it was fun. I it started out because I just came to the Atlas Society. We didn't have <laughs> much in the way of resources, so I decided to do a draw my life of Ayn Rand, and I 
decided I was going to do the voiceover. So I worked with my neighbor who uh, coaches various Hollywood A-listers on their accents. And so he taught me how to do a Russian accent. And once I did the Russian accent, I had another uh, mentor, Jim Pinkerton, and said, oh, you got to go and do the, the, the full thing. And so I, uh, I, I did it not very well, but it was a lot of fun. And I've, I've had the opportunity to do debates with different, you know, people and dressing up as their favorite historical figures. So maybe someday we will. And you know, it's a great way to learn. It really is. There's a lot, I've seen a number of people who do my, probably my favorite one. There's a, a fellow named John Douglas Hall who performs as James Madison at Madison's home Montpelier in, in hmm. Orange, Virginia. And he is phenomenal at it. I mean, the man is James Madison. And there, it's a really fun way to learn and to, to see a person not just as words on a page, but as a three-dimensional person. Well, yeah, and it's, it's creative. And I, I, I think that um, we've got a lot of credible scholars, like I mentioned, I had the opportunity to go to uh, the Goldwater Institute, Cato Institute. We, in the Liberty Movement, we are long on uh, credibility, but, but we could perhaps do a little bit of a better job with creativity and challenging ourselves with things that are you know, more spontaneous or uh, more dramatic or more artistic are, um, are a good way to do that. And I'm gonna challenge you guys in the audience um, to bring your questions forward for Tim. Uh, I wanted to, to just switch it up a little bit from Frederick Douglass to talk a little bit about the work that you are doing at the Goldwater Institute. If you could tell us a little bit about the, uh, the mission of, of the Goldwater Institute, which I now know, um, but I, I thought it was uh, very interesting. Our audience will like to know. And then also um, that you, uh, uh, you filed a First Amendment brief with the Supreme Court. I, I found this out from an article you wrote uh, last week. Um, it was uh, regarding a law implemented 10 years ago by Kamala Harris and uh, when she was Attorney General of California. What did Harris do in California and how was this potentially a, a violation of the First Amendment? So the, the Institute is both a, a, a think tank, I mean, that we develop policy ideas and scholarship, and also a litigation center in that we sue the government when it violates the, the Constitution or, or important state laws that protect individual liberty. And also we have a, a policy arm that tries to, to affect how laws are passed in Arizona and nationwide with our, our biggest success in recent years was our right to try initiative that allows people to, uh, to obtain medicines that the FDA has not yet fully approved for sale. But the, um, the litigation arm, which is what I am in charge of, I oversee our legal staff here. We try and, and uh, vindicate constitutional rights and to enforce laws that exist to protect individual freedom, particularly at the state level. Cause you see, you know, there's lots of groups out there like you know, Pacific Legal Foundation, the Institute for Justice or whatever that, and they do a lot of great work, but they tend to do it in federal court and they tend to talk about the federal constitution. And we want to emphasize to people that state constitutions sometimes contain much more protective uh, provisions with regard to individual freedom. So we try to take advantage of these state constitutional protections for free speech or private property or economic liberty or what have you 
uh, by going to state court instead of the federal courts. Now, the, the case you're talking about is the, uh, the case called Thomas More Law Center versus Becerra or, um, or Americans for Prosperity versus Becerra. It's, it was two cases, now it's one. And it involves, what happened was, was uh, when she was Attorney General of California, Harris issued this order telling nonprofit groups that they could no longer file their annual paperwork with redactions on there to, to protect the, the personal information of their donors. So you have to file these annual reports with the state to make sure that you know, you're complying with the laws regarding nonprofits. And, and part of that is, this is federal paperwork that you have to turn over to the state. Part of that is there's a part where you put the name, address, and employment information of certain top-level donors. And the state had previously allowed you to like draw a black mark over that so that it couldn't be read in case it accidentally got leaked or posted on the internet or something. And that's perfectly fine with the state because they could get that information if they needed to by sending you a subpoena or, or an audit or something like that. And so it had always been fine. Well, Harris said, no, no, from now on, you have to just give us this information. And but she said, I promise to keep it secret. Well, that turned out not to be the case. It turned out that hundreds, thousands of these documents were placed on the internet by the Attorney's General, Attorney General's office. And the problem with that is that, of course, once you put their people's names and addresses on the internet or something, they're targets for harassment or threats or intimidation. And that really chills their First Amendment rights. That's what lawyers call it, the chilling effect, which is a term for when people are afraid to speak out because they're afraid of what, what kind of consequences might follow, even if it's not you know, punishment by the government itself, even if it's they get fired from their job or, or blacklisted or something like that. So this lawsuit was started years ago, and it finally is before the US Supreme Court to say the First Amendment does not allow the attorney general to make that kind of demand. There are some circumstances when the government can require you to, to give up your privacy rights uh, when you speak out. Now, I don't think that, I, I, think I, have my, I have objections to that, but that's the existing precedent. But to go further and say, even people who are not engaged in politics, who are not like running for office or, or supporting a candidate, that they too have, have to turn over their private personal information, that's a real problem. And so we filed a brief arguing that that's unconstitutional. Um, it's just one of many of our uh, attempts to address this question of donor privacy. Another one is an a case I just argued in the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals involving a, a think tank in New Mexico called the Rio Grande Foundation. The Rio Grande Foundation was opposed to a Santa Fe, New Mexico ordinance that would have imposed a two cent sales tax on sugared soft drinks, right? It's, that's a pretty ordinary political thing. It's just, should you put a, a small tax on sugared soft drinks? You remember what a big deal this was back before the pandemic days. And Rio Grande was opposed to this, so they said we're against it. Well, if you say you're against it, you have to turn over to the government the names, addresses, and employment information of anybody who's donated money to the Rio Grande Foundation for that purpose. Hmm. So now that information gets put published, gets published to the general public. And suppose five or 10 years from now, the Rio Grande Foundation takes a position on some really controversial thing. Now these people's names and addresses are out there. They could be harassed, targeted for intimidation, violence, threats. So we sued over that. And that case is now pending in the Tenth Circuit. It's another example of, of this movement, and it's only getting worse, to try and strip people of their privacy rights when they want to exercise their First Amendment rights. 
Yeah, I, it's been on my mind a lot. Another one of the draw my lives that we're, we're, we've got in the, uh, the pipeline is um, my name is cancel culture. And what you're talking about right now in terms of uh, the possibility that if donors' names are out there that um, now with doxing and people just in an organized fashion often uh, encouraging uh, violence or um, intimidation that, uh, you know, even if something may be protected by the First Amendment, that there is also a culture of, of free speech, which, uh, which seems to be um, under, under siege. Uh, a, a great quote that uh, you had in, in that article from last week was, uh, which we were memeing, by the way, transparency is for government, privacy is for people. And of course, Ayn Rand talked about uh, the progress of a civilization as the progress of, of privacy, of setting men free from other men. Um, but privacy, it, you, you've also written about rights and how to properly understand rights. I mean, is, is pr privacy, should we be considering that as a right? Well, you know, I, I have kind of a different take on this than a lot of other thinkers do. So a lot of people talk about the right to privacy as kind of a distinct right. And this traces back, this, this is a tradition that's more than 100 years old now. It dates back to an, a very influential article that was published by Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who argued that privacy should be conceived of as a right separate and apart from things like uh, private property or free speech or something. And when you read his article, he was arguing that, for example, you shouldn't be allowed to take a photograph of somebody else without their consent. And that's, I think that's wrong. I think the concept of privacy should be kind of distinguished from the idea of right to privacy as people nowadays refer to it. For one thing, when people speak of right to privacy nowadays, they tend to be referring to sexual intimacy rights. Mm -hmm. And although that is an important part of privacy, it certainly is not all that privacy is about. I think of privacy as being essentially, in some cases, synonymous with right. If you have a right to something, that means that that thing is a private affair. It means that it's not a matter for public deliberation or public control. So private property is a, a form of this privacy concept. Free speech means that it's my private decision whether or not to speak. And this, by the way, th this is a good example of free speech because there's this concept out there of the, the so-called marketplace of ideas. And this idea has been very influential among progressives who think that privacy, I mean, uh, free speech rather, they think free speech exists to promote democracy. That the reason we have free speech is to make democracy work better. Well, I don't think that's true. And I think one of the reasons, one of the ways we know that's not true is because what about a person's right not to speak? If democracy, if the free speech right exists in order to foster democracy, then there's no reason not to force people to express their views, right? Then there's no reason to, to allow people to remain silent. And in fact, there have historically been efforts to deprive people of the right to not speak out on a political matter. The most famous one is from the 40s when, this, when there was the Supreme Court cases about whether you could force children to pledge allegiance to the flag. 
They didn't want to pledge allegiance. They didn't want to pledge allegiance to some other flag. They just didn't want to do anything at all. And the Supreme Court ultimately said that that was protected by the First Amendment. The reason why is because free speech does not exist to promote democracy, although it may also do that. It exists as an element of a person's self-ownership. And self-ownership is a function of privacy generally conceived. So that's why I, I tend to shy away from the phrase right to privacy because it can lead to some conceptual confusions given the, the especially the law, because of this uh, old article by Justice Brandeis and the way privacy, right to privacy is generally conceived today. Privacy is an important element of every right properly understood. If it is a right, that means it's a private matter. It, it, as, as the old song has it, it ain't nobody's business if I do. That's what privacy properly conceived means. And that's an element of all individual rights. That's very interesting uh, distinction. We've got some questions from the audience and we still have about uh, 25 minutes or so. So um, I wanna encourage those of you who are joining us on Zoom, I know you're there, and on Facebook and YouTube. Ask, ask Tim anything, not gonna guarantee that he will answer, but uh, if it's not quite up his alley, but um, send your questions in, just type them into the chat section uh, or into the comment stream on the other social media platforms. So Susan Thompson is asking, um, she's saying, speaking of uh, overreach in California, uh, any litigation on COVID lockdown in, in the works? Is that something that you guys have uh, taken a, a look at specifically with regards to, you know, um, freedom of, of uh, practicing religion and, and property rights? Yeah. So there are a lot of cases challenging various forms of lockdown or various aspects of lockdowns or whatever across the country. Here in Arizona, we've been monitoring several and we've been involved in a couple. We've also been involved in, um, in helping some litigators in Pennsylvania. And actually just today, I was looking at a case that's going on right now in California that's being litigated by our friends at the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is um, headquartered in Sacramento. And I, I worked there for, for several years before joining Goldwater. Um, so there are these cases that are going on. The, the most interesting one I think recently that we were involved in is in Tucson. The, the county, Pima County adopted a curfew that forced people to be out of the public in between the hours of 10 and 6 a.m., uh, 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. So the, that, the question in that case was whether that was allowed by state law because Arizona, like most states, has an emergency management act that allows that you know provides for what to do in cases of emergency, and it does allow for curfews in some circumstances. But those curfews are are only allowed in cases where there's a threat to a violence, like in a riot or something like that. And of course, uh, this year long pandemic has not been like that. So we uh, assisted some lawyers who were arguing that case, and that was a, a victory. The the um, trial court found that the county had no authority to impose that curfew and that case will soon be appealed. I'm sure the county will appeal it soon and then will be on, uh, before the court of appeals. But there are so, a lot of these cases going on and, and a lot of them are very complicated and a lot of them are kind of on you know tangential aspects of these uh, of these lockdowns. And then some of them are just direct challenges to them. Another, the Pennsylvania one is another interesting example. That was a situation where the governor ordered a shutdown and then allowed for exceptions to the shutdown. 
you could apply for an exception to allow yourself to remain open. How were these exceptions administered? Yeah, it was basically, nobody really knows. It was like a black box, you know? And so surprise, surprise, it turned out that exceptions were given to some people and not others. And maybe there was some favoritism going on and so forth. So uh, the Pennsylvania court found that that was unconstitutional in one case. And then there's another case that's still going on that we've been helping out with. So there are a lot of important constitutional issues that are raised by the, the pandemic and the lockdowns and so forth. And it's been, it's <laughs> trying to keep up with them all is impossible, but some of the more interesting ones we are definitely uh, uh, participating in or keeping an eye on. Okay, we've got a question from uh, Vicki saying she feels very discouraged about the state of free speech in the country right now. Um, as someone who works with this issue regularly, is it all just doom and gloom or do we, are you seeing some, some brighter, um, silver linings or well as a as the lawyer i'll play the lawyer's privilege and say a little yes and a little no uh so the here's the bright side the bright side is that the supreme court is i think very pro free speech right now i think it has been very pro free speech for for a long time um it's particularly when justice kennedy was on the court Ken justice kennedy was very much a free speech advocate. And really his legacy as a Supreme Court justice, I think is freedom of speech. But uh, when he re retired and was, re and was replaced, I don't think that that went away at all. I think that, that free speech has remained very much on the minds of the Supreme Court. Obviously they took this case about, about donor privacy, for example. So I think that, um, I think there's a lot of reason for optimism when you're talking about the Supreme Court. Now, of course, the Supreme Court is not the end of the game. There are lots of other courts out there. There are lots of lower courts. The Supreme Court only takes about 80 cases a year. So there's a lot of opportunity for mischief out there uh, when it comes to the law. And the other downside is that it's more of a cultural matter than a legal or political matter right now. Hmm. When we talk about cancel culture and this sort of thing, you know, just the other day, I'm sure you heard about this, that, that Amazon removed uh, a couple books from, from sale. One, a book that takes on this issue of transgender identity and so forth, written by a, a conservative author at the Heritage Foundation. And then of all things, uh, the one yesterday, I think it was, is the Dr. Seuss books are now uh, no longer for sale on Amazon because he was apparently a racist or whatever it might be. So when we're talking about that, the, when you complain about it, of course, a lot of people say, well, they're a private company. They have the right to do what they want. Of course they do. In fact, it is Amazon's exercise of Amazon's First Amendment rights to choose not to sell those books. They have a constitutional right to make that choice. No question about it. The second and I think deeper question is a cultural one. And that is, what is our society thinking about expression and communication and debate when there's this frightening trend of not arguing against somebody, but trying to prevent people from hearing that person's point of view in the first place. This book about transgender identity, for example, the author is a conservative person whom I disagree with very strongly on just about everything I've ever read by him. But I have the right to read his ideas and to debate it. And 
and I that serves a healthy society, right? That's there's nothing wrong with that. There's a that's a good thing when we are open to those kinds of discussions. And to instead try to make it harder for me to buy his book, that doesn't seem like a healthy approach to me. And now somebody might say, well, what about something like, you know, Mein Kampf or something? Well, for one thing, Mein Kampf is for sale right now on Amazon.com for $22. But yes, of course, Mein Kampf should be available for people to buy and to read. For one thing, how do we understand an evil ideology unless we're able to read the texts of that ideology and confront them for as what they stand for. The best thing ever written about freedom of the press was written by John Milton in 400 years ago in a little book called Areopagitica. And Milton, who of course is, was a great poet, the author of Paradise Lost, he argued that we people who try to censor literature do so in the name of virtue, but they're not really promoting virtue because what they're doing is making it difficult to encounter sin, to understand what sin really is. And so what you end up with is a person who's never encountered sin and doesn't know what it is, and how can you call that person virtuous, right? So of course, our society and of course, individuals benefit by a free access to literature, as free as possible, to as much literature as possible, no matter how offensive it might be, so that we can discuss these things because the alternative is just not workable. The alternative where we have somebody else in charge of deciding what does and doesn't get discussed in society, that's just a, it's just unworkable and it's unhealthy, regardless of whether it's constitutional or legal. And incidentally, this of course was the theme of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, you know, the classic text, the classic novel on censorship. Bradbury was not complaining about government censorship primarily. He was talking about the dangers of a society where we refuse to read because we don't want our feelings hurt. And what happens in that kind of a society is even worse than what happens in a society with censorship. Yeah, well, I just uh, had a couple of weeks ago Nadine Strawson on the webinar. And uh, though she is to talk about her book on hate speech, and why it uh, is is protected, but she was also, you know, even though she, of course, was at the ACLU for many years, um, she did make the case that uh, even if something is um, is it's your free speech in, to pull a book or to not, you know, talk to someone, that uh, there's there a cultural value to uh, to having an exchange of ideas, letting reason um be your guide and i i find that even within our you know liberty or objectivist community i had a, a conservative on recently and i had some libertarians who said well you know he's he's criticized said terrible things about democrats and so you shouldn't have him i said well no i'll have you know we, we should we should be having more speech with people that we disagree not uh, not having less speech um, okay, I'm going to get to some more questions. By the way, let me, let me interrupt and say, you know, Douglas said this, you know, we were talking about Frederick Douglas. Douglas has a, a speech on this. In fact, it's the speech that he delivered at my alma mater, Hillsdale College, when he visited there, um, when, when he said, you know, if Jefferson Davis wants to go out there and say horrible things, he absolutely has the constitutional right to do so, and we all should despise him for what he says, 
but the press should be free to publish it. Now, that's a really remarkable thing. Here is a former slave speaking during the Civil War saying, specifically, if Jefferson Davis wants to go out there and denounce the Constitution, he should be free to do so and nobody should censor his, his, his rights because Douglas held dear to this, this old libertarian principle, a liberal principle that also John Milton argued that truth can ultimately defend itself. If truth can't defend itself, well, then none of us, sure as hell, none of us can defend it, right? If, if truth is incapable of defending itself, then our troubles are so severe that no amount of censorship can rescue us at that point. So we, we should be confident that a free and open discussion of reality is going to result in the, the, the arrival at truth. So you recently received some good news about a case that you are currently spearheading uh, against the Oregon Bar Association, challenging them on grounds of, uh, of the First Amendment, um, right to freely associate. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed to let the case go to trial. Do, am I getting that right? And could you tell yeah. us a little bit about that, the background of that case? So, and this is a free speech thing too, because what, what happens is lawyers in a lot of the states are forced by state law to join a bar association. Now, this is different from the state bar. When people talk about the bar exam, that's a different thing. The bar exam is a licensing examination you have to take to get a license to practice law. But on top of that, a lot of states also force you to join a bar association, which is just a trade organization, right? It's like, it's like any other trade organization. And when you join it, as you're forced to, you're also forced to pay them annual dues. And that can be like four or $500 a year. And then the bar associations go out and they spend this money to lobby the government for political positions or publish editorials about political issues, sometimes having absolutely nothing to do with the practice of law. And in theory, these bar associations exist to regulate lawyers, but then they're out there spending money on things like, you know, the, in Louisiana, for example, opposing the, an idea to um, allow or to teach free enterprise education in the public mm -hmm. schools. That's one of the things the Louisiana State Bar did, but with money taken from lawyers against their will. So this violates two things in the First Amendment. First, it violates your free speech rights, your right not to pay for ideas you disagree with. And secondly, your freedom of association rights, your right not to join an organization that you don't want to be a member of. And so we at the Goldwater Institute have filed several lawsuits against these kinds of laws, including this one in Oregon. And this goes back to an old a couple of old precedents. Back in the 60s, the Supreme Court issued a decision called Lathrop. And it's unclear, it's a very confusing decision, whether, whether or not the Supreme Court said it was okay to force people to join bar associations to begin with. If you read that decision closely, it never actually says that. A lot of people thought that it did say that. So then 30 years later in the 90s in a case called Keller, the Supreme Court decided this case and again did the same thing, never actually said that it's okay to force lawyers to join a bar association but everybody seems to think that that's what the court said. So when we filed all of these lawsuits challenging these bar, these mandatory bars, a lot of the, the states responded by saying, no, no, the Supreme Court's already said this is okay. Well, we said, no, the court actually never did. If you read those old precedents closely, they never actually said this is okay. And of course it's not okay. You can't force somebody to join 
you know, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, you shouldn't be able to force somebody to join a political club. So you shouldn't be able to force somebody to join the Bar Association if they don't want to. You know, it's, this isn't a matter of protecting the public. This is a matter of forcing somebody into, our, into an organization that they don't want to be a member of and that they don't want to subsidize. And so what happened in the Ninth Circuit cases, in that Oregon case, the court said, sure enough, Goldwater should be allowed to make this, this uh, argument because it turns out the, the old cases did not say that this was okay. So that's what that decision boils down to. It's, a, it's really welcome. This is the first time that any court has come out and said, yeah, this is an open question and we're willing to hear these arguments. So we're looking forward to, to making those arguments in court going forward. Wow, and thank you for telling me about the Louisiana case. I had no idea. That case, actually, the Louisiana case is going to be argued in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on Friday by my colleague, Jacob Hubert. We will be watching. Uh, the chairman of the Board of the Atlas Society, of course, Jay LaPere, is in Louisiana, and all of my maternal side of my family is in Louisiana. So it has a special place in uh, our hearts. So we've got a question here from someone whose name I do not want to butcher, Danny O. say Okay, he's gonna have to give me a, a phonetics on that. But anyway, he is talking about um, Douglas who visited uh, Ireland in the mid 1840s, uh, once wrote that the oppression of the Irish was the same uh, degradation as the American slave. Um, jumping to the question uh, part of it was, should Douglas's observation here help us to understand that this condition of stripping people of their pride um, it was not an exclusively American phenomenon at the time? Oh yeah, no question. You know, Douglas in Ireland, if I remember right, there was just a book published just a couple years ago about Douglas's time in Ireland, which I have, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, I have not read one of the few Douglas books I have not had an opportunity to read, but uh, absolutely, of course, this is a universal experience. And, and, you know, slavery is one of the oldest, if not the oldest human institutions. Slavery is ubiquitous in human history. Slavery is older than monogamy. It's older than writing. It's, it's one of the oldest traditions, if you wanna put it that way, in human history. When people talk about the evils of slavery, they are of course right that it's evil. But when they uh, sometimes tend to suggest that it's a uniquely American phenomenon, that is completely incorrect. Um, the Americans of the, at the founding time in, seven, in the 1770s, slavery had been present in British America for a century and a half before that. And it had been present on the North American continent since well before the Spaniards arrived because of course the natives practice their own forms of slavery. So slavery is a ubiquitous human institution. It is not a uniquely American experience, quite the opposite. What is uniquely American is the idea that slavery is evil and cannot be reconciled with the natural rights of man. It's no mistake, it's no accident that the very first anti-slavery societies were founded in places like Philadelphia in the 1770s. And then uh, and in France, by the way, France endorsed anti-slavery thinking as a function of this classical liberal movement that gave birth to the American Revolution. So the, it's this, the, the ideas of classical liberalism or libertarianism today, those ideas which came about in the late 17th and early 18th centuries 
that's where our anti-slavery ideas come from. And when we talk about this history, it's crucial that we recognize that the, the real turning point, the unique experience here is in that discovery. And Douglas was a classical liberal of the old school of, of the John Locke, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison school, at, who believed that an individual owns himself. Government has no right to control the individual, to dictate how he should live, what he should earn, what he should own, and so forth. And so absolutely, this is not at all a uniquely American phenomenon, the experience of slavery. It's something that all of us, if you go far enough back in our, in our family trees, are descended from slaves one way or the other. And we can all see around us in the history of the 20th century that the horrors of oppression and state slavery in communism or Nazism, these things happen, can't happen everywhere and can happen everywhere. And so I, I think that leads us to all sympathize with those who experienced it in the past and to recognize the universality of the right to freedom today. We have a lot of questions uh, on Dr. Seuss and the, the books being um, no longer published or or banned, uh, so which you had mentioned earlier, Art Habighorst and Chaz Stone, uh, is, he's asking, how can we stop this, quote, book burning, uh, especially by a giant like Amazon? Well. Oh, well, the answer is buy it from Barnes and Noble. Um, <laughs> when when uh, uh, the, the book, uh, the transgender book that I mentioned, when that was, was removed from Amazon, the very first thing I did was bought a copy from Barnes and Noble. Uh, I'm not really in the market for Dr. Seuss books myself, uh, so I'm not sure that I would go that far right now. But, but that's the way to do it: is to 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 make clear to these these book companies that what your values are. You know that the when we talk about the power of a corporation, the power of a corporation is its power to persuade you to give it money. And if you don't give it their money, your money, then that's you denying them that power. So if you object to that, then take a stand and, and put your money where your mouth is. It's as simple as that. Of course, Amazon has the right to choose what books it's going to stock and what books it's going to sell. And they absolutely have that right. And you have the right to take your business elsewhere if, if you so choose. And then the market sorts out uh, that decision. You know, there are lots of bookstores that specialize. For instance, there's lots of religious bookstores, church bookstores, and so forth. They are very selective, obviously, about what books they do and don't sell. And nobody should force them to sell a book that they don't want to. But on the other hand, I don't do a lot of shopping there. So, yeah, I mean, one of the trends, of course, that's, that's happened, I think that um, to one of our previous questioners who was asking about uh, signs of hope, I mean, 20 years ago, you there was no self-publishing. I mean, it was just, that was it. You had to get an agent, you had to uh, get go with a, a established publisher. Now, it, I mean, the world has changed. People can um, write their own books, publish their own books, market their, their own books. Um, so I, I, I do think that a lot of the technological changes and even changes that these the, the lockdowns this, this past year have have accelerated in terms of the way that we're able to uh, to exchange ideas and, and communicate um, that 
we are, you know, don't forget everybody, we're wired for negativity. We are wired to look at the, the threats. And I definitely don't mean to minimize a lot of the really crummy things that have happened over the past year. Um, I think that uh, embracing gratitude as, uh, as a self-interested uh, virtue that, that uh, increases Absolutely. Our I could not agree agency. more. The key to the key to happiness is is cultivating a sense of gratitude, no question. Yeah, and and because, history, by the way, that's that's one reason why I appreciate enjoy and appreciate history so much is knowing history really helps you to really feel that gratitude. And it uh, just read something like read the Little House on the Prairie novels, you know, and and see what what that family went through. And, or the nonfiction version of the book uh, uh, Pioneer Girl that came out recently. Read those and 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 reflect on how good we have it, notwithstanding all the crap we have all around us. And it really helps you to feel a sense of of gratitude and a, a sense of of contentment with your life. Yeah, I'm going to be thinking of that. I'm planning my Passover. Uh, celebration um, and commemoration, and that is is one of the reasons we celebrate Passover in Judaism is to remember, uh, you know, how far maybe you've come so far in, in terms of the the history of of slavery, of bondage, and of overcoming. So, uh, wow, this is this is just flown by. Um, so we are really we're at the top of the hour. Is there anything, Tim, that I didn't? Uh, cover that any other final reflections that you may want to add that we didn't get oh to? it's always dangerous to, uh, quest to ask that question of a lawyer I, I could <laughs> I could go on for six or more hours if you wanted me to but uh, no it's a great great pleasure talking about these issues that matter so much to me and I, I hope people will will uh, check out our work at the Goldwater Institute you can get our blog at indefenseofliberty.blog our main website is goldwaterinstitute.org and uh, of course, you can check out my, my writing at the Objective Standard and my personal blog where I keep track of all these things. So there's plenty of resources out there. And, and to re reiterate, try and, try and look on the bright side of all the good things that, that we have compared to the way uh, our, our ancestors lived their lives. And it'll, it'll keep your, your chin up if you're feeling bad about the state of affairs. Yeah, again, everyone, I highly recommend uh, that you, at the very least, get uh, Frederick Douglass self-made man and it's uh, it's on audible too i really enjoyed the the narration of that check out the work of the goldwater institute consider supporting them they like the atlas society where we have many of our donors watching us today we're nonprofits, and so we do rely on the generosity of our sponsors so uh thank you very much tim please thank give you. my you did. You, yeah, I was uh, a little nervous about you because Christina is such a star. I was like, boy, that's just a tough act to follow. I don't but, even uh, try to compete. <laughs> she has slightly better, you know, decor. But um, but anyway, <laughs> as she reminds me frequently. <laughs> OK, well, sorry about that. OK, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Uh, join us next week. We are I'm going to be interviewing a friend of mine again, talking about people from different uh, you know, corners of the ideological spectrum. Dale Lawner, he is a screenwriter. He wrote My Cousin uh, Vinny, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. So that'll be fun. That'll be a little bit different. And, uh, and so we'll see you next week. Thank you, Tim. Thanks everybody. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>